0: You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence Special Broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com.
1: We're going to start, in fact, what we've decided to do, we're going to have a little conversation here. Uh, And if you want to listen in over your breakfast, you're you're more than welcome. So uh, uh, we thought we'd do it like that. Um, My name's Martin Bright. Uh, I am, among other things, the political editor of the Jewish Chronicle. Uh, I'm indeed the first non Jewish political editor of the Jewish Chronicle, so I'm kind of their house goy. Um, uh, I also write uh, a blog for The Spectator, so there I'm their kind of house lefty. Um, but I also run a small charity called New Deal of the Mind, uh, which uh, is designed to get young people back to work in the creative industries. Um, so in terms of our, uh, our title, our very broad title this morning of culture and community, uh, I'd like to feel that what we do is, is at the heart of uh, the values of the cultural industries, if we can be so bold. Um, we set up New Deal of the Mind about uh, 18 months ago. We took the rhetoric of the then Labour government uh, on face value that we thought that we could Uh, We could use the creative industries uh, as as a generator of recovery. Uh, (coughs) Thanks, uh, among among other things, to the uh, generosity of cultural institutions such as Somerset House. Um, We've been able, in that time, to get about 700 people back into jobs uh, across the creative industries, across the country, uh, in small organizations, Uh, such as the Notting Hill Carnival Bands, uh, large organizations such as the South Bank uh, and uh, the National Theatre. So I hope I can bring something to this discussion, but uh, in fact, I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm here to introduce you to the members of the panel. Um, On my far left, we have uh, Ivo Dornay uh, from the National Trust. Indeed, someone said he is the National Trust. Uh, I hope he can uh, live up to that title. Uh, Immediately immediately to my left uh, uh, is Nick Capaldi from the Arts Council Wales. Immediately to my right is Gwyn Miles, director of Somerset House, with whom we work very, very closely. Uh, And on my far right is Andrew St George, writer, academic and trustee of two small town charities in uh, Oxfordshire, which is very, uh, very, very intriguing indeed, and I hope he'll elaborate on that. Um, So eat away, feel free to listen to our little conversation that we're about to have. Um, I thought we would begin with a few introductory remarks from each of uh, each of our guests. I hope we can, uh, uh, we can wake you up. Uh, I must say that uh, that whiskey with Neil Stewart at 1 o'clock in the morning did seem like a very, very good idea at the time, uh, but I hope I can uh, be awake enough to, to, to uh, hold the ring here. So, um, so Ivo, if you wouldn't mind uh, beginning, we have this very broad title of Uh, culture and community. We're talking about values here. Uh, I know you have some strong views uh, about these two huge concepts. So if you could begin, that would be great.
2: Um, Well, the National National Trust started up originally as a sort of Christian socialist um, do-gooding movement in the Victorian period, um, which was supported um, by sort of liberal aristocrats like the Duke of Westminster. Um, So it's a rather odd coalition of those um, rather diverse cultural interest groups. And the original idea of the Trust was to provide green spaces for the teeming urban masses um, who had nowhere to go to breathe God's um, good air and to commune with the beauties of nature. Um, Nowadays, we're saddled with with the reputation of being the stately homes people um, which is quite a long journey from that original aim. And the thinking we have within the Trust at the moment is to try and get back a little bit more to where we started from originally. At the same time, we feel that as we're set up in order to uh, be for the benefit of the nation, to promote and preserve places of historic interest and natural beauty for the benefit of the nation, it might be a good idea if we reached beyond the kind of scone-eating public a little um, And so there is a strategic objective we've set ourselves, which is to at least create a situation where everyone feels a bit like a member or that they could be a member, um, which is not where we think we are at the moment. And to that end, I've been asked recently to look at London, um, uh, an area where we've had a great deal of difficulty penetrating in terms of membership and really feeling relevant to people at all, We're not doing too bad a job because we have 5% of the London population at the moment. Nationally, we have 7.5%, which is just under 4 million people, which is more or less um, substantially bigger than the TUC um, or the affiliated unions of that, and about seven times the the, the membership of all the political parties in the UK combined. So we're not doing too badly, and we're putting on about 100,000 members every year. But the difficulty really is is actually making us feel something other than a wonderful organization for elderly people um, who want a nice tranquil day out having a cup of tea in the countryside somewhere. And I think from that introduction about the trust, the quick thing is to ask the question really about community. Because what's been interesting for me in the last four months, doing lots of focus groups and things of that kind, looking at London, is trying to work out actually where this spirit of community actually lies and it's very interesting you can look at it in demographic and market research terms and find affiliated sort of socioeconomic groups who share values uh, but i think it's always been and i've been reading my david canadine on the 40s and 50s recently it's always been a bit of a myth this notion of community this golden age where everybody's front door was open and everybody ran in borrowed cups of sugar from each other on a sort of daily basis Um, community actually may be much more to do with you're a member of the pigeon fanciers' community, or if you live in Knightsbridge, you're the Learjet owners' community, or um, you're a a community of interests or or shared interests rather than a kind of geographic community. And Yet at the same time, there's a strangeness about that too, particularly in London, where you find that actually the very few things that get people really passionate, if they're not a sort of single protest or campaign issue, are things like football clubs. And those are, those are communities of interest, if you like, around a sport um, which are very geographic in their nature. Although we know that you know, the Arsenal Football Club is largely made up of Frenchmen and um, Chelsea is largely made up of Africans and Liverpool is largely made up of Spaniards, etc. But there is this very, very strong sense of, if you like, geographical affiliation, affiliation with place. And so what I'm really working on, and I'd love your advice and help about this, is how do we kind of nurture that sort of local chauvinism in a way which makes people want to uh, act together in, for mutual benefit? Um, how do we um, sort of, if you like, trigger all the benefits and the good things that come out of that sense of affiliation? Because what we do know about London is that 63% of the population is under 40, um, that those, when they get much older than 40, a great many people actually emigrate from London. In fact, London is a completely immigrant community, really. I immigrated there in 1957, age five, but, um, but most people, actually very, very few people, were born in London, curiously. It's a, it's, a, it's a fact that enormous numbers of people have come from other places. And they're often there for a limited period of time. So those are the sort of issues that I'm looking at. And I think some sort of finding this magic which unites people around place. I think many of us know, um, I think sort of something like 70%, 90% of the people here seem to be North Londoners, you know. If you're a North Londoner, you've got to try to have a strong affiliation with that. If you're from West London, you feel slightly different. And if you're from South London, different again. East, different again. So I think somehow getting some,
1: There's something to do with geography and culture here, um, and I'd like to look further at that. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Ivo. Um, so the magic that unites us around place, Nick, uh, is that something that uh, the Arts Council of Wales can, uh, can relate to? Yeah,
3: very much so. I mean, uh, where are we now? A magical place which was inspired by the creativity and imagination uh, of an extraordinary individual and that acted uh, as a magnet uh, to bring together thinkers, creators... Um, And since we're here in Wales, uh, then uh, I think as good a place as any is the uh, cultural historian Raymond Williams, um, who said culture is ordinary and that's where we must start. Uh, And I think that that what Williams always espoused was this notion that there's nothing exclusive or mysterious about a whole society's uh, need to share and participate in its culture. Uh, And that's a very strong thread, uh, I think, which runs through a whole variety of uh, communities here in Wales. Um, Arts and culture matters in a very visible uh, and very visceral way. Um, If you think back over history, I mean, I was talking about geography and place. Well, if you go around the ex-mining towns of the South Wales Valleys, then you know, Cumbran, Merthyr Tidville, Tonopandy, an extraordinary sense of, of place and culture. You see all of these magnificent miners' institutes and libraries that were paid for by the penny and the pound of the miners themselves, uh, for whom culture was a really important part um, of their everyday lives. It was aspirational, it was a means of coming together, the male voice. Uh, choir tradition. Um, Welsh National Opera started as a chorus. It's now one of the most important operas in the UK. And that sense of coming together for the collective greater good uh, is a theme which very much runs through uh, that sense of, of self-help philanthropic activity. Um, in some ways, slightly unusual and at odds with the founding of bodies like the Arts Councils. I mean, we came from that wonderful post-war flowering um, John Maynard Keynes of, of establishing a whole series of um, public bodies. But I think Arts Councils, certainly in the 1940s and early 50s, were a, a very patrician uh, type of organisation. Kind of, um, I remember the phrase that Lord Reith used when he was talking about the early days of the BBC, uh, when he said, I know exactly what the public wants, and I'm going to make damn sure they don't get it. Uh, and I think there is sometimes a sense uh, that you know trying to avoid um, the so-called dumbing down. But believe me, I've seen activity taking place at an international and a local level. Um, and if people care about it, if they bring passion then it can be exceptional, it can be uplifting. And that's what we're about. It's about exciting people through the quality of the creative activity that they're involved with. No good giving people rubbish. You mustn't do that, and particularly with public funds. It's got to be of quality, it's got to be exciting, inspiring, and engaging. And that's why the arts and culture matter in Wales.
1: Thank you very much, Nick. Um, If I could bring... Gwyn Miles in now. Um, Gwyn, you uh, run Somerset House, which is itself a small uh, but extremely vibrant uh, community. Um, how, how does that work?
0: Well, um, this is really about a little microcosm. Um, Somerset House is a fantastic building right in the middle of London. And um, in the 1970s, Simon Jenkins ran a, campaign, ran a campaign to wake up the sleeping palace. And the idea of opening Somerset House up to the public rather than keeping it full of civil servants struck quite a chord and eventually it happened once the lottery came in in the, in the 1990s. But we are a very young organisation. Somerset House Trust was set up in 1997 um, to preserve the buildings, develop them, open them to the public and run an arts and cultural centre. And the idea at that point was that we would somehow... These the, the spaces would be taken over and made into art galleries and museums, and it started with the Gilbert Collection. Um, What nobody had thought about was whether we needed a lot of art galleries and museums in the middle of London there, and um, my feeling since I've been there for the last five years is that that's not what Somerset House is about. Somerset House isn't a palace. It's on the site of a palace, but it was built as government offices, and it is a brilliant purpose-built cellular office block. And it's absolutely brilliant for people because when you go into it there's a wonderful atmosphere in the place but it's also people scaled. So actually what is fantastic in Somerset House is when you get people together. Now you can get people together in the courtyard and you can have a concert in there with 3000 people having the most wonderful time because you're very protected in those walls. It's a very magical place. But equally, I think it's really important to get people working in Somerset House so we actually produce a community of like minded people who come from all sorts of areas in the creative and cultural industries and we've started to do that. So we only have part of the building at the moment. I'm basically the landlady. One of my tenants is um, the Old Institute of Art, which is a great jewel in our crown. We have the most fabulous galleries there, not visited by that many people, which you could say was a problem, but you could also say it's a fantastic resource because you can go there and be on your own in a room of Cezannes and Manets and Monets. It's absolutely gorgeous. So that's a jewel in our crown, and it's a very, it's a very lovely, calm place to be. What we do in the South Building, which we have, is we we tend to be slightly more manic. We have things like the. Um, British Fashion Council are one of our tenants. We have London Fashion Week. We're going to have a graphic arts fair this month. Next month, we'll have a photographic fair. Um, and then we'll have concerts and we'll have open air films. So we do quite a lot in there. But it's the people who actually reside working in there that I think are really important. And at the moment, we still have the Inland Revenue in two wings. And we're, try- we're, we're trying to persuade them to go. But <laughs> the, the good thing about the Inland Revenue is they pay rent. And our whole basis of what we do is based on, actually, we need the rent. We don't get any government grant, but we think we can run a really vibrant cultural community in the middle of London with artists in residence who can then show what they're doing. So you've got a platform for creativity in the middle of London as a sort of self-sustaining community. And my only point is really that you can get the people in and you can let things happen, which actually I think are happening. But you also have to think about... Not managing it, because I hate the idea of managed community, but you sort of have to find mechanisms to get people to actually communicate and develop a sense of sort of community spirit. So that's what I think.
1: Okay, thank, thanks very much, Gwen. Um, yes, I should have said, of course, at the beginning that uh, our full speaker is not Peter Florence. Um, uh, Peter Florence uh, is not with us this morning, but we do have Andrew St. George. So, um, Andrew, if you could uh, outline some of what, uh, what you feel about cultural community, that would be very helpful.
4: Thank you. Uh, I was Peter Florence's best man at his wedding, so I'm still deputising <laughs> Almost him of now. Um, uh, anyone who is trustee of any uh, small charity or large charity, could they raise their hand please? Um, one of the things that um, appeals to me, and you can see there's quite a, a large number of, of people here who have that kind of interest that runs parallel to their professional lives. One of the things that's interesting about being a trustee on a a, a charity is that you're involved in something which is, um, by definition, much longer than the span of a human life. Most of us in this room won't live much longer than maybe 500 months from now. But a charity, uh, we hope, will extend further. And it's the job of a charity or a charitable trust to carry values from one generation to the next, just as it's the job, as we were hearing yesterday, although it wasn't mentioned, of a joint stock company to transfer wealth from one generation to the next. So we're involved in a, in a, a, a proper heredity uh, a heritage operation just by being uh, trustees. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves. Um, Nick was saying that, uh, as Raymond Williams said, that culture is normal. Um, it, put me in mind of Eliot's comment, T.S. Yes, Eliot's comment, I think in 1929, Sacred Wood, that uh, culture is boiled beef and Derby Day and cabbage. Well, that may be Elliot's culture, but it's certainly not mine. I don't eat boiled cabbage. I've never been to the Derby um, and I don't eat boiled beef. So it's very specific as well. So it has a, a, a nix quite right that it, it, it's specific to a particular place. So there's place and passing values to the next generation. So I'm just going to outline two of the Uh, two of the small town trusts that I sit on in Wantage which is a small market town in Oxfordshire nestling under the Berkshire Downs. Um, The first is uh, a private park which we set up in uh, 2000, a millennium park, two acres in the middle of town, privately owned, privately run, open to all 364 days a year. we do the litter, we do, the, we do the, uh, uh, you know, the sweeping up of leaves. All of the maintenance is paid for uh, by uh, the trust. The park is open to everyone, scruffy kids, drinkers, uh, toddlers, old-age pensioners walking through. It's uh, a microcosm of our uh, community, but it's been uh, carefully Uh, planted with small-leaf limes and uh, uh, spring flowers and so on. So it has the appearance of wildness, and it's a very important resource uh, for us. Um, We've got a few poetry installations around the place that I don't particularly approve of, but that's not my my thing. Um, It gives, if you like, a local habitation and a name, as Shakespeare would say, to a dream. So that's our park, very heavily used by all members of the community, Um, The second trust that I sit on is um, uh, an educational charity. Last week, I had a letter from a woman who applied to us for uh, a grant for five pounds, five pounds for a sweatshirt for one of her children to go to school. And we give uniform um, grants to people. Uh, as they come into school. Now that's, what is it, two cappuccinos for most people here. Um, She felt it was worth writing to us for that. We have to be there uh, for her and people like her 100 years from now. And that's the perspective that I see uh, uh, in terms of carrying our values from one generation to the next. Finally, how does this work for me? There are three things. First of all, you find a local need and to use a, a, a to use a um, a microphone metaphor, you amplify it. What is needed here, you turn up the volume because if one person needs it, likelihood is many people will. Second, you work with what you've got. Our gardener, if you like, or the park keeper, um, is an is an epileptic builder. He can't get a job anywhere because on a building site because he has epilepsy. He's six foot six. He loves gardening. No one is going to mess with Jay's Park. Um, You work with what you get. He's delighted to fit in with us. It's like a a friend of mine who ran a call center and and found, or a small call center and found that um, there was a a collection of people who were insomniac who actually liked to work through the night. And so that's working with what you get, uh, working with what you're sent. And the third thing is uh, that you always have to work from the bottom up. In these instances, uh, if we don't do it, no one else will. Um, and um, uh, so that's the that's the span, if you like, of of, of my work. And it's all, uh, you know, done uh, uh, out of hours, uh, after hours, in the evenings, and so on. As many of you um, who are trustees will also um, will also work. So local charity um, but with long-term implications.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Um, uh, I think there was a a certain amount of uh, uh, frustration uh, yesterday at uh, yesterday's uh, second session that we didn't get to the nub of the matter until uh, quite far into the discussion. So I'm quite keen for us to uh, begin by looking at the the crisis that we find ourselves in um, and whether Arts, the culture, the creative industries uh, can rise to the, to the challenge of, uh, of, of helping uh, in this crisis. Uh, or indeed, to, whether we can address the question of whether that's appropriate, whether culture and the arts, uh, or heritage, or indeed charities, um, are an appropriate place to look uh, during this period for some sort of help. I spend a lot of time uh, on platforms arguing the economic case for creativity in the arts uh, and uh, in fact Sarah Churchwell who's uh, sitting here uh, just such a, on just such an occasion took me to task for uh, rattling out these kind of economic figures about the, the brilliant things that the creative industries do for, uh, for Britain uh, and said well uh, hang on a minute uh, that isn't why people go to the theatre that isn't why people read books and that isn't why people do culture. Uh, They they do it for other reasons. And uh, increasingly, I've found that it doesn't matter how many times you talk to ministers about the economic case for creativity, the important community benefits of of creativity, the arts, the heritage industries. Um, It doesn't matter actually how many times you think you've persuaded them, and they start trotting out these figures as well. Mm -hmm. Actually, they're not listening. They don't really care, and they don't really believe it. Um, So uh, I just wonder whether we can kind of crack through these arguments about Culture and creativity, heritage industries, being something out there that does stuff to society, and whether we can develop uh, an argument for, I suppose, embedding these things more deeply in a way that, um, you know, uh, perhaps concepts such as business or uh, politics, uh, where we don't question whether they are part of uh, uh, what makes things better or worse. Um, uh, you know, we don't. We don't. Uh, we don't ask those questions about other things, but uh, you know, is there a way of embedding culture and creativity in a, in a more meaningful way? Sorry, I'm rambling, but Ivo. Well,
2: um, I think one of the great problems for the National Trust is that many people think we're a government agency, and actually we have less than 3% of all our income comes from government. Absolutely everything else comes, you know, it's by the people, of the people, for the people. Um, recently, The Great Forest Debate recently... Um, in a way, was an example of a moment where, actually, if the government had handled it differently, we might have been able to actually have been really useful there um, as a sort of big society player, if you like. Um, Astonishingly, given that they'd planned to give huge chunks of the landscape to charities, um, the biggest charity, we look after 660,000 acres, the biggest charity that looks after landscape was not consulted at all before the paper came out. Um, so um, frankly they just so blew their situation that there was no possible way we could enter into a dialogue with them there because if we had um, uh, people would say hey you know, the National Trust must be Tory because it's bailing the government out um, uh, if they'd talked to us beforehand we'd, uh, we'd have more thinking about how all this stuff might work and if there'd been a ger- more general consultation um, we could have stepped in there in a kind of sort of big society role I think um, so um, we do have, we, we believe, we are absolutely there to provide a, a vital um, social benefit, which is quality of life. Actually, what the trust is about ultimately is not the places, it's not about pickling them an aspect, it's about giving people good experiences. And, um, and if we can assist in that in a, in a uh, really useful way, Um, and if we can assist society to have good experiences, that's what we're there for. And I think what's going to be fun in London is that um, we can't acquire lots of things in London because everything costs too much, and nobody wants to give us anything in London anyway. Um, So what we've got to do is find new ways of giving people good experiences. And in the light of the economic recession and the crisis and everything else, actually people thinking about how the public in general um, can have a better quality of life without necessarily having to win the X Factor or have the latest iPod, is quite a useful social function, I think.
1: Thanks, I actually wanted to bring Andrew in at this point. Um, I mean, Andrew, is, is, is culture, is heritage what we do to people, or can we, can we embed it in a, in a more meaningful way?
4: Um, it depends where you, where you start with the definition of culture. I mean, the, uh, the 19th century thought of culture as, um, classically, the best that has been thought and said Um, uh, in human life. That's Matthew Arnold. Um, Now we've become um, uh, open to all kinds of other cultures, so it's much more a matter of uh, us learning about others and incorporating those into our own. Um, It's a matter of huge pride to me uh, that you can hear 300 languages on the London Underground. I think that's fantastic. That's my culture. These are my brothers and sisters. That's fantastic. Um, it's also when I, we have a house in Wales, so it's a, a matter of huge pride to me that my small town, Rayada, uh, supported by Nick, has uh, um, an organisation called Community Arts, Rayada and District, CARAD, which has a state-of-the-art digital recording studio, and kids come from all over the place to, um, to record um, you know, uh, uh, music and, uh, and dubs and so on. So I, those are, those are already... Mm. You can hear, hear already from that that there are two very different sorts of cultures. I think, in a way, without making it, uh, turning ourselves into a uh, moving from a market economy to a market society, we, we can pick and choose which culture we go for. As Ivo was saying earlier, you, know, you might be the community of greyhound owners, you might be a community of uh, sailors or a community of, of, of whatever. Um, and those are fluid things. And the culture that goes with them are fluid things. So, not culture in Aspic. Um, there's no core set of core cultural values because we have such an open community. I can give you examples of closed communities where the cultural values are very strong and uh, which regulate behaviour. But that's not what we have here. So, the more open, the better.
1: Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much. So we've already had uh, T. S. Eliot, Raymond Williams, and Matthew Arnold all before nine o'clock. <laughs> Um, now, we are talking there about, uh, about high culture, Nick, but um, one of the things that I get concerned about is particularly this concept of community arts. We have a, an idea of community arts that kind of comes from probably the 1980s uh, that seems to, in certain cases, be um, revisited now, which is that uh, it's, it's about... Um, Crap art, actually, doing things uh, kind of badly, but isn't that nice? And we pat people on the head and we fill empty shops with sort of uh, broken furniture and, uh, uh, and call that art. Um, uh, is there a way, you were talking about quality, you were saying that the important thing about what the Arts Council does is, is providing good art. Um, how do you square that circle within a, a recession when, you know, to a certain extent you do want to be patting people on the head?
3: Um, I don't think you do want to be patting people on the head. Um, I hope that's the one thing um, that we, we don't do. But um, yes, I mean, I was listening to your comments earlier on about all of the arguments you use in terms of public subsidy uh, for the arts. And, and like you, I've spent my time in boring, dreadful local authority committee meetings justifying public investment in the arts on the basis of the jobs it provides for the coach drivers who are taking people to the theatre. Now, it's really, really important that we don't lose sight of, if you like that, art for art's sake, what it is that makes the arts special. Uh, because whether it's Bark's St Matthew Passion, or whether it's a rock concert, it has the potential to excite you, to inspire you. And if it doesn't, then why would we want to do it? Why would you want to give people... <coughs> bad things it's just it's bad business and it's bad for the community and my experience is that if you treat people with respect if you give them the tools and the opportunities to explore their individual creativity then the most extraordinary things uh, can happen Um, and i think it's we get too hung up on labels high art low art community arts, professional, amateur, voluntary, I think what we've got to do is to focus on the quality of the activity itself. You know when you've seen or felt something special. You might not necessarily understand it, but there's that tingle that goes down the spine, that X factor. And I think that I've seen difficult, awkward young people who are disenfranchised, disengaged from society who have been brought back in because something has lit a spark that's captured their imagination and they've said, I want to be part of that. I want to experience that. So the arts are incredibly powerful and let's not get hung up too much between what's commercial and what's subsidised. Let's focus on what's good. Thanks very much. I mean, um, Gwyn, one of the... I just
0: want to disagree with you first. I don't think culture and the high arts is in crisis. I think actually it may be a difficult time, but I don't think the arts are in crisis at all. Mm. I think actually people are coping and dealing with things well. Where there's a problem is actually training creative people for the future. And I think that's far more concerning about how you nurture creativity and what you do to teach people better in our schools about how to be creative and you don't focus them into only doing certain narrow things. So I'm much more concerned about um, training the next generation and actually giving them the, the space to, to blossom, than, than um, worrying about whether the arts is in crisis because I don't see yeah. that it is.
1: No, I mean I I, I I happen to agree with you there. I don't. Uh, uh, I was talking about I was talking about the wider the wider economic crisis really. In fact, uh, we at New Deal of the Mind have just received a long letter from uh, one of the young people that's, that's working with us, uh, saying just that, saying that uh, he's now working on a project with the British Council to. Uh, to rescue their films from the the 1930s and 1940s, their propaganda films. Uh, And he's involved with a group of uh, young unemployed people uh, 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 on uh, a website that is basically taking these these propaganda films and and showing them to the nation and to the world. Uh, And he said in this letter, um, I didn't know that this was possible. I've got a degree uh, I've got a master's degree, I've got a first degree, I've got a master's degree, I was lost, uh, I was unemployed for six months, uh, I wasn't told at school that I could be an entrepreneur, that I could set myself up on my own as a creative person, and uh, I'm furious that I wasn't told how to do that. I mean, what I wanted to ask you, Gwyn, was you know, within, the, within the kind of Somerset House model, you know, do you feel that there is, there is a new way of doing things? You don't receive an enormous amount of public subsidy. Um, you know none. you, you none receive no, no, no public subsidy although <laughs> some of the organizations within the do, do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they pay some rent but um, are there other models are there other ways of doing this kind of stuff in the 21st century beyond the, the kind of grant-based top-down model
0: oh i think there are and i think we do have to find them but I, and i think it's got to be a mixed economy i don't think you can have just subsidized arts or just just commercial so i think we have to find a route that allows us to bring different forms of funding in. But also, we have to think a bit differently about what we do. I mean, I used to be in a national museum where the idea of selling from an exhibition was totally, you know, anathema, that you shouldn't do it. I see no reason why artists shouldn't be able to sell their work if they, if they so choose. And um, it's damn good for me if they do. <laughs> so, um, I, I, um, no, I, I, I think um, there should be new models um, I think you have to work quite hard to make sure they're going to work. And you also, I believe in them coming from the bottom up rather than being imposed from above. I think, actually, if you let certain things happen and see how it works, that's, that's <coughs> nice. But it's, that's, you can do that in a microcosm. You can try things, see what works. It's more difficult when you're looking at a broader picture. I, think. I
2: want to pick up on this question when you teach creativity. I, mean, I think one of the things that... Um, I've experienced in the last six years at the National Trust is that, you know, we, we've actually, because we've been bedded down there for 117 years, we've become a terribly <clears throat> sluggish civil servant-like bureaucracy, and we're desperately trying to fight that, and actually all that stuff about anti fragility and all that sort of, in fact, what we're doing is we're doing absolutely opposite of what a, what a normal business model is, which is we are smashing the centre and disseminating all the power to the... To, to, the atomized pieces. So um, for years, we've been controlling from commanding and controlling from the center. And we created an enormous consultation bureaucracy. And now what we're doing is actually saying, right, the property managers are now in charge. We're going to create a consultancy and they can come to us and we'll provide them with services, but only when they ask. Um, I frankly think the jury's out as to whether this is going to work. <laughs> because <laughs> It rather depends on having property managers who are naturally creative. And and it, and, it, and it requires us to let go in a way which is so anathema to our culture. I, you know, We will see. Um, this is the grand experiment which is going on at the moment. But I think creativity is, is an unteachable thing. I mean, doubtless, there are probably representatives here of, of companies which offer services to teach corporates and things of that kind, creativity. I think it's absolutely, it's either in the DNA or it's not. And it's probably who you hire or... Do people have it or they don't have it. It's
0: not a question of teaching creativity; it's giving space for creative activities to happen, <laughs> like art, like teaching um, potting and stuff. And you, you can't do it in schools anymore in the way that you could. And I think that's mm-hmm. an absolute mm-hmm. tragedy. Yeah, yeah. And um, if you look at what's happening in the uh, higher education, a lot of the a lot of the art, arts-based courses are, n- are not doing so well, and they 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 haven't got the you know that's it's that's not that's seen too. as important, and it should be.
1: Okay, so smashing the center and devolving to the atomized pieces uh, sounds like uh, an exciting idea. Do we uh, have any questions from from the audience? I think we've got about a quarter of an hour to... Yes.
5: I'm Sanjay Nazarali from from the BBC. Um, And I just... What I hear is National Trust, Art Galleries and Museums. I see groups of young people who are being asked to be creative. And it seems to me we've locked ourselves into a language set that is extremely exclusive. Now, you talk about politics um, and business, Martin, um, being that much more visceral, in a sense. Well, they touch us on a day-to-day basis. We're losing jobs, right? Um, Our salaries are being cut, Um, or or frozen, Um, there's a business down the road that's closing, but the art is something that a very specific type of person does. So I think we are all guilty of narrowing the breadth. I think the second type of aspect is that there are two paradigms I've heard on, on, on the panel, and one is the park and the idea of giving space, which I think is really exciting. But we're coming from this aspect that we've all created, I think, within the communications industries, which is we target. We laser target things. We've got the FT, and we know exactly what the demographics are, and we know that our salespeople go out and sell on that demographic. And the national trust that sells scones is inherently targeting something. Now, the other paradigm you've got is a public space, like a park, where it is for the winos and the kids and the yummy mummies and absolutely everyone else. And maybe we need to rethink this, not as art galleries and museums, but as here is space. What we're doing is we're creating space for you. And the thing that keeps you, the thing that holds you together is, to to Ivo's point, you live in this locality. That's the only thing that holds you together. Within that, every little sub-community within it can use the same thing. So I think that those are possibly.
1: I think it's self-imposed aspect. Okay, I'm sure people want to come back, but we should, should probably take a couple more questions if people want to. Uh, yeah, Gentlemen, just behind.
6: Um, Martin Davidson, British Council, and uh, thank you, Martin, for the support uh, and help on the uh, films. If you haven't seen them, they are fantastic, and they're up on the web.
1: Yeah, um, I was hoping to show them, but the web isn't, uh, isn't actually uh, good enough in this room. But. Yeah,
6: my interest is, is, is very much, um, obviously, within the international space. Um, and one of the things that uh, we're beginning to work on is the power of the development of cultural institutions as both nation builders and developers. Um, and it seems to, to me, to us, that it is vitally important that if we are going to uh, help organizations and countries develop... <laughs> one of the most important things that you can do is actually give them institutions. And one of the most powerful sets of institutions are cultural institutions. Um, they are institutions of civil governance. Uh, they give uh, authority to people to, uh, to take a position and interfere within the political space. Um, and uh, they are uh, very powerful uh, developers of, of community, um, which allows people to hold their, those in authority to account. And I think that we very often in this country, because we have uh, a set of institutions which have huge longevity, we tend to forget what the power of those institutions are and the fact that they need renewal. Um, One of the the things I thought was particularly interesting was Andrew's uh, example of the park, because that is about a bottom-up, community-growing institution, which actually uh, will inevitably be able to hold um, those around it to account but which also has the capacity to uh, 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 become fixed in aspect. So how do you actually constantly refresh those institutions, um, keeping them uh, powerful uh, and not allow them to actually uh, uh, become moribund?
1: Okay, before we go to the panel, do we have any more questions from the floor? Yeah.
7: Um, hi, I'm Ian Burrell from The Independent. Um, I wanted to uh, give some feedback to the National Trust, picking up on what Sanjay just said earlier. Um, I wondered if it's possible for your group managers to reach out a little bit more in the daytime to um, young filmmakers, uh, musicians uh, music video makers in London. Um, I recently did an interview with uh, a young filmmaker uh, who funded a a low budget feature film um, through a painting and decorating business he set most of it in uh, estates in Kennington in South London but one of the most moving scenes in the film was shot in a historic chapel which he'd always been intrigued by since he was a child. Um, and giving some sort of ownership uh, to people of these places which seem very far away, but actually geographically very near to them, um, is, is, I think, um, uh, potentially going to change the way they see their environment. Um, it's a way of giving uh, creative communities access to buildings which seem like something other. And also with the, 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 the urban music makers now, a lot of them seeing themselves as British, that's, that's their imprint. They're trying to put that across. Um, You can give them access to creative spaces, locations, which are quite an alternative for them to the stairwells and the subways, which is where they're filming and representing themselves at the the moment. And that that, that doesn't mean that they have to express themselves through historic buildings, but let their creativity do the work for them, I think, change perceptions.
1: Right. Okay, we will go. Uh, well, quite a lot of those questions and comments were directed at Ivo. I will come back to other people in the audience afterwards. So, um, Ivo, the answer to that has to be yes, surely.
2: Absolutely. And, um, <laughs> but, but actually, no, but I would agree. I would agree that
1: actually we're very stuffy and we're very
2: difficult to deal with a lot of the time. And all that we're trying to change. But, you know, there's a tendency of, you know, the, the visceral, deep rooted thing in the DNA of the, our 60,000 volunteers is don't touch, you know. Um, and, and it's a real kind of cultural education we're trying to put ourselves through, sort of almost as a Marxist, you know, you know, brainwashing, to teach ourselves to actually let go a bit and to allow people to do things. And I think you know, we ought to have sort of almost free access for people within a certain vicinity of a property, for example, to break down this kind of sense of the, the gates, you know. Um, uh, but it's, uh, you know, we're just beginning on this stuff, and we've got a long way to go. Nick? No, I didn't see why it shouldn't happen. It would be the property
1: manager who would decide. It should. Nick, some challenging uh, questions there.
3: Yes, and um, I have some sympathy with your comments about language, because I think language can alienate and exclude as much as it includes if it's used in a, in a lazy way. Um, I mean, I don't know where where you live, but I was intrigued by your comment about the arts are for a certain type of person. Uh, Well, in this country, um, 85% of the adult public are arts attenders. And over the last five years, the largest area of growth in terms of those enjoying and taking part in the arts has been by the least affluent. And I can take you to rugby clubs and village halls, and you'll see a very dynamic cultural activity. Um, in some ways, I think the large institutions, it's, it's a cheap shot, because they're so visible, they're so public, and they seem to eat up large amounts of money. But when I see the thousands of school children running around inside the National Museum uh, in Cardiff having a fantastic time, then that tells me uh, that the arts are for everybody. Now, what we've got to do is to try and show how people can enjoy that activity and take part in it. Um, but I think if we slap labels on things, and if we say, well, you know, arts are the things that you're not necessarily going to like, but they're good for you, then we've lost. You know, We've got to engage people's sense of passion and excitement and interest in these things. Uh, yeah, because otherwise... If you work in the job that I do, why get up in the morning? You know, what's the alternative? Mediocre art that nobody wants to go to? Not for me. I
0: think you're absolutely right. There is a problem with keeping things in ASPIC. Um, And when you're dealing with a heritage asset, you've got to think about how you make sure that is okay and that's handed on to generations. Um, And we try and do a lot now to bring people through the portals of various... Historic buildings, but they do in themselves impose a certain culture, and they do in themselves, um, you know, quite often, are a barrier to people coming in and finding what's there. When they get there, they realise it's great. Somerset House is one of these places where quite a few kids will think they're not allowed in, and it's a question of how can we make it so that that boundary, which is, you know, what, you know I look at and think that's great, I'd love to go in there. A lot of people think, oh, I can't go in there, and how do we, what we try and do is do run a programme that will actually bring people in. One of our best school groups recently came in to do something with the Sorrell Foundation, and they came from Portland. And most of the kids who came, had never, A, had never been to London, but had never been into Somerset House. And when they were walking over Waterloo Bridge, they stopped and looked at Somerset House, and it's built of Portland stone. So that stone was quarried by their grandfathers. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, it, you know, it is for them.
1: So, Andrew, do you want to briefly come in, and then I'll, I'll take A couple more questions and then we'll wrap up. Uh, Yes, to
4: Sanjay's comment, one of the the difficulties that that, uh, the arts has to overcome is that it's a completely different discourse from what's become the accepted norm between us. That is, uh, it's very very difficult to measure things, it's very difficult to measure profit, um, uh, and it's very difficult to uh, conduct argument. In other words, you can't have a debate with a Chopin sonata. So um, it's not in tune with uh, the way we think about the world, which is in terms of input, output, key performance indicators, and so on. And it has to overcome that and, um, uh, uh, and, and take advantage of that difference. Um, there was, uh, you mentioned the, the, the park. One of the great advantages of the park is that it exists in the present. So it doesn't have a huge historical tale. We're not trying to preserve things. Um, uh, in fact, when I go in with my chainsaw, it's, uh, you know, f- far from that. Um, um, and so it's an instant space where people pass through. So it's quite a nice metaphor for all sorts of things, when you think about it. And of course Ivo will have this in terms of his, his uh, the, the land that the National Trust owns. Um, but Uh, we, uh, certainly in the Millennium Park, don't have the responsibility of historical heritage. So that, in a way, we're much freer. Um, And then I suppose a third comment I have um, uh, uh, at the back here, and also listening to the the previous three, is that measures of success in this field are all about, if if you hear what people have said, oh, we had a group of children in, or... We did this, or we worked alongside. It's all about doing things with people, alongside them. So, when we're in the park, you know, there's somebody will bring down a wheelbarrow full of cake. Um, we'll do a working party, you know, twice a year or three times a year. But you work alongside people, and that way you convey uh, values as you do things, cheerfulness or. Um, uh, hard work or you know any of those rather sort of boy scoutish type things which actually uh, do work in practice. So doing things with people I think is, is a key element
1: here. Okay, thank you very much.
8: Hi I'm K A S Quinn. I just realized I'm an unintentional case study for a culture in the community because week before last was half term. And um, I took my children every day to some function in the city of London. Um, I went to Somerset House and we did uh, watercolors. I went to the Family Museum. We made a family mobile. I went to the Queen Elizabeth Hall where they had Family Dance Day. That was very exhausting. But what I discovered when I was there is there was not a lot of crumpet eating or, um, yes, there were a lot of kind of, mothers with Gucci rucksacks, but there was a wide and diverse community of people attending these arts and music and dance programs. You know, there were 20-year-old mothers with three children. There were grandparents. while the parents were working. And two things. Not only were parents bringing their own children, but the institutions themselves had put instruments in place to bring a diverse community of children into these projects. And uh, unlike so many parents who went to Mauritius or Zermatt, my week was free, and I think it was a pretty good week. So while you're introspective, I think you're doing a pretty good job. So that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's no points. <laughs> okay, question at the back of the question here, and then uh, I'll ask the panelists to, to answer and conclude and wrap up all in one.
9: I'm Harvey Goldsmith. I think that um, I don't think we have a problem generally of getting people to go and visit I think the problem lies totally at the other end, is how do we stimulate people to create, which, which you touched on earlier. I think part of the problem is that the barrier to entry um, that has been created by either things like the Arts Council or indeed the Lottery and so on, and other forms of opportunity and grants um, for creative people has become so high And the biggest and probably the hardest issue that we all have to deal with is the dreaded health and safety rules and regulations, (laughs) which have got so out of hand and so ridiculous um, that the barriers to entry for new ideas and new activities that involve more than three people uh, now actually involve um, a manual that I I produced a, a concert at the first concert at the Emirates Stadium, which is Arsenal's football stadium, a couple of years back. It cost me 11,700 pounds for the health and safety aspect, and we had to create a, a form that actually was 209 pages. And if you got to page 63, you were actually tripping yourself up because page 27 actually told you completely the converse. It's completely and totally out of hand. So what I call the grey people have won, hands down, across the country. And the one thing I'm fearful of uh, is that we've created a community of culture where you can go and see it, but what we're not doing is creating a community of culture where we have really good New activities and opportunities in the creative front. And we seem to have a dearth at that end. We've got a rich history, Of course, we have all the pageantry and all the rest of it. Uh, We have a great musical culture uh, of the past, but what we're not doing is anywhere near enough to stimulate. And stimulation means taking the barriers down, allowing people to have a go, giving them an opportunity, and stimulating those people to even think about it.
1: Thank you very much, Harvey.
10: Mendoza.
9: Uh, my question
10: is actually connected to uh, the point just made, which is, what is, in the panel's opinion, coming uh, from the sort of bottom-up, if you like, uh, and how is how is it being done? I mean, in the sense that I have uh, two young boys, and what seems to interest them is YouTube. So when, I, when they steal my iPad, that's what they look at, and then when I look at what they've seen, uh, they find it funny. Most of the time, I don't. Uh, but sometimes it's quite catchy. But people are creating quite entertaining little videos, or whatever it is they're doing, um, and that spread. And that word is then spread around. It's completely spontaneous, as far as I, I can tell. Um, and is that the is that the sort of future? Is that where culture is going to come from? in in, this, in the sense of actually uniting the sort of broader community, not just small little pockets, but things that will bring the nation together. Where's that going to come from?
1: Okay, thank you very much. Okay, well, I'm going to bring the panel in to make some very brief remarks uh, in conclusion and hopefully answer some of, uh, some of what's come up in that final, final question session. So um, let's move from left to right again. Uh, Ivan.
2: Well, on the last point,
1: I mean, I think what we're going to be trying to say over the next,
2: the next three years, we're going to be talking about the outdoors. We're going to try and pretend we haven't got any houses at all, and we're going to really talk about getting people out into the countryside. And I think the reason for that is actually partly what you're talking about, which is the the kind of technology-obsessed culture now. You know, it's something like only 21% of 18 to 30-year-olds in London actually went into the country at all last year. Um, And we are, as a nation, we believe, completely losing touch with the sort of natural environment. Um, Beauty is a kind of therapy. Um, Natural beauty is a therapy. Um, Cultural beauty is a therapy. And actually, if people are losing touch with that, then something is really going wrong with society. And I think all the distractions of the technological world, actually, this may sound incredibly um, uh, reactionary, but the distractions of the the technological society are actually kind of almost doing us damage, I think.
3: Nick? I think that um, Harvey Goldsmith put his finger on, on a really, really important issue, which is, is the doing and the opportunities uh, to create. It's very much easier in bureaucratic life to stop something than to enable it. And, I mean, here in Wales, even, it's not as good as it should be. We have this wonderful thing called foundation phase education, which is built for very young children on the doing and the making. Um, Wonderful for the first three or four years, and it all grinds to a halt because there isn't enough funding to ensure that music, theatre, the visual arts, these things are enabled in schools. So it's stop-start. And what we need is a coherent kind of ladder of opportunity that enables people to progress, that supports them, that they can get on it, they can get off it, according to their particular circumstances, but they do have the ability to grow and to develop. And, I mean... 30 years ago, as, a, as an event promoter, I didn't have risk assessments. And you know I hear so many organizations, small community celebrations that say, we simply can't afford the insurance, or we can't fill out this form, and it's, it is a concern. Now, you know, we are a litigious society, so perhaps we're colluding in this. And, but it does worry me that it's much easier to prevent than to enable and we've got to turn that round. Thank you, Nick. Go ahead.
0: Um, I, I completely agree as well that engagement is the important thing. It's giving people things to do and allowing them to express themselves. That is is actually the trick. What we do in Somerset House is necessarily very small, and my worry is you only touch a very few people. Rather than a lot, we run a What Next um, music programme alongside our gigs. We also have um, youth musicians who who actually play a gig at the end with professional musicians and so it's giving them something wonderful but it's very few people we can touch like that and I don't know how you make those kinds of things wider and um, deeper. Andrew Fine.
4: We're all examples of people who uh, live life forwards but are able to understand it only backwards and one of the, one of the key elements that all uh, trusts have to do is to design the future. That may mean using all kinds of new technology um, I would welcome uh, anything on that front.
1: Okay, thank you very much, and uh, thank you very much to all of you for your uh, for your contribution this morning. Uh, uh, so all that's left to do is to thank our panel in the in the usual manner. Before we cross off up the hill.